Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Hey, friends, and welcome to Typology. I'm Anthony Skinner, producer of the show, and we want to congratulate Ian on the success of his new book, The Road Back to You, An Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery has sold 100,000 copies in its first year. You can go to Amazon, iTunes, or wherever your local books are sold and grab a copy. Now we've got a fantastic part two with Michael Cusick today, but before we get to that, I wanna share a few things with you. If you're new to the Enneagram and want to learn more about it, you can go to the podcast page at www.typologypodcast.com That's www.typologypodcast.com and download a free chapter from Ian's book titled Finding Your Type. Also, while you're on the Typology website, visit the About page and take the introductory Enneagram assessment to start your journey toward identifying your Enneagram number. Now, as promised, I'd like to give a shout out to a few of our Patreon supporters. Catherine Snedeker-Hoke, Laura Berry, Greg Carlett, Shannon, Susan Alexander, Caitlin Brothers, Aria Baker, Zachary Neal, Brenda Byrne, Heather Hudson, and Whitney Jones. All of your contributions are so greatly appreciated and you are what makes this podcast possible. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And now let's pick back up in part two of our conversation with Michael Cusick and our host, Ian Cron. Now, let's talk about shame for one second, Michael, because, I mean, this is something you and I have talked about for years. I, uh, My friend Becca Stevens loves to say that love is the most powerful force for change in the universe. And then I, I love to chime in like any good four, like Eeyore in the background and say, yes, and shame would be the second. Uh, you know, I agree. I agree. Shame is what makes the world go around, right? <laughs> well, it doesn't. I mean, it's just so dang powerful. I mean, it, it's just. I mean, the gravitational suck of it is amazing. And we're in the shame triad, twos, threes, and fours. So that's the go-to emotion for us. You know, five, sixes, and sevens, fear is the go-to emotion. Eight, nine, and ones, anger is the go-to emotion. But for you and I, as a two and a four, man, shame is, we're Velcro for it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, whatever the external manifestation is of our struggle, our compulsion, our presenting problem, anger, alcohol, buying stuff that you don't need, sex, helping, uh, shame is always what fuels that compulsion. Uh, because it, Because where there's shame, our soul can't rest in a sense of being loved. And where there's shame, uh, as someone said, shame is like a raincoat over the soul that repels the living water of love that would establish us as the beloved. And so the very thing that we're hungry and thirsty for, which is that kind of deep love for who we are, the shame actually sets us up to never be able to get that. Mm. 
And of course, that's the that's the sort of the sad news of you know of the downside or one of the hard things we learned when we studied the Enneagram, which is that all of our strategies for finding love in the end repel it actually become a defense against the love that we're seeking to find through our strategies. If I'm a four and I'm trying to be special and unique, you're trying to meet the needs of other people, so forth and so forth. These are all strategies uh, to get our own needs met, all of which work in the end against getting our needs met. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's kind of cliche that we say as therapists sometimes, but what helps us in our very youngest stages of development to survive then becomes a barrier for us to thrive. And, uh, you know, part of the work of the second half of life, or uh, for me, I had my middle age crisis when I was 29 and then have had one about every three years since then. I can attest to that. Um, I can attest to that. <laughs> well, that's that's what fours do, right? It's every, every six months. Uh, actually, about every six hours. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it isn't it nice to have this uh, this knowledge of our numbers so we have some kind of explanation for our for our behavior and our pathology? Yes, and a way to weaponize it and turn it against one another. Yeah. <laughs> so the 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 um, the idea of uh, survival is you know we we get to put together a sense of self and we do that by and large through not the emergence of our essence but by how we kind of manufacture a world for ourselves, And very early on, I figured out that I can, I can do that. I can get my needs met. I can become someone or have a self by caring and by giving. And that very thing has turned around to bite me. And grace and the gift is that what feels like the end uh, in the brokenness, what, what feels like despair, what feels like a tragedy actually becomes a gift if we press into it, if we open the gift, even though our hands are bleeding when we open it. Because what, what happens is all of the, uh, the external strategies uh, have the potential to fall away when you realize they're not only not working, but they're, uh, they're holding you back. And then what begins to emerge is this essence and this true self. And that's when our spirituality, I've discovered, goes from something I have to do to something that is done to me. And it, it goes from something I have to grasp as opposed to I can posture myself where I can be grasped by love. And so it's really been transforming to get to that place to go, yeah, this this isn't working for me and, I, and I'm not self-sufficient and I do need help and to be befriended and to have people give to me. Mm. And, and, and that's all been a process of learning what humility is. And about three quarters of my life has been humiliation. And one quarter has been me learning how to humble myself. And I'd, I'd much rather have that. But I think that's the only way to grow. Yeah. And of course, humility is the antidotal virtue to the, the deadly sin or the passion of pride. And that's long been the case in, in you know, Enneagram teaching and, and wisdom, the ability to say, hey, I don't have unlimited resources to help other people in terms of energy, time, gifts, you know, uh, even though I've gone through my life assuming that I can do all of it for everybody, you know, the humility to say, you know, I don't have the answers for everybody and everything. And, and uh, there are, I'm a finite creature 
and I, I, I have needs of my own that have to be addressed if I can be in the world with others. And I love what you just said, though, about the, the humility piece. I always think about in C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, you know, the most famous moment in it when that, remember that sort of demon lizard thing is on the guy's yeah, shoulder yeah. and and the angel keeps saying to him, uh, you know, let me just, you know, let me kill it, let me kill it. And it's some kind of a compulsion or addiction. I can't remember exactly, but some kind of, you know. Le- Red Lizard of Lust. That's uh, oh. the last page of my book, The Red Lizard of Lust. Oh, no kidding. Okay, so that was on his shoulder, right? And he says, let me kill it. And he yep. goes, no, no, no. And they're having this sort of internal, he and the, this this guy is having this internal struggle with this red lizard of lust. Finally, he he surrenders. The, the, the angel kills it. But what's interesting is, is that the lizard becomes this beautiful steed on which yep. this man rides away in joy. So is I think, what's the application there for the Enneagram? One was, there's a great analog, right? Which is the dark side of personality, the downside of who we are. If we surrender it, if we uh, disidentify ourselves with it, can actually become a gift uh, on which yeah. you know we can we can go so much further in our life. So, has that if that's happened for you? Describe the journey. I know it has. So just describe it. Well, that that was always the hope, and I know that uh, many of your listeners don't come from a Christian tradition, but the Christian tradition that I was given and introduced to. Uh, was was one of overpromising and under delivering. You know, it was this idea that Jesus will just change your life and everything will be great. You'll have your best life now and, you know, prosperity. And that wasn't the case for me because of my, uh, you know, it, having had a pornography addiction from, you know, my early childhood and having been abused, it was like, okay, I know how to act on the outside now, but I still feel inadequate, shameful, and, you know, profoundly anxious that any minute I'm going to be found out. And so I developed a double life. And I, I think that religion and, and Christianity at its worst lead to the duplicity of uh, leading a life where there are two parts of you, as opposed to what to be fully human means is to be integrated, to have the disparate parts of us made whole. And, you know, that really started to happen for me when my life and my marriage fell apart. And so that was an experience of where I was humbled through being exposed of my own failures and shortcomings. But the absolute uh, truth that happens again and again and again is that when I choose humility, and I want to define that in a minute because I think it's often very misunderstood, when I choose to trust, when I choose to not have to as Brene Brown would say, to make myself large or to make myself small, but just to be who I am, that, that, that that's a letting go of my attempts to control my world, to make myself okay, to give me a sense of self, and in my case, through helping and giving. And when I do that, that something deeper emerges, like that you know, white powerful stallion in the C.S. Lewis story. And, and going back to spirituality, you know, most of the great religious traditions in the world that have depth spirituality to them and not just uh, uh, belief and, and dogma, they have this principle of surrender leads to some kind of um, gift that you receive. Uh, Christ teachings that, you know, if you lose your life, you will find it. Um, and, you know, the way Richard Rohr talks about that is the way up is the way down. And so the, the way of becoming is the way of surrendering. 
And I, I, I just think it's the, the richest, deepest truth because it gives us so much freedom. It has given me so much freedom to be who I really am. Needs and wants that I once believed were shameful and wrong and selfish and failures and foibles and quirks and weaknesses and limitations. There's so much freedom to simply say, this is who I am. And when we do that and not have to add to who we are, something really beautiful emerges. Mm. Well, that's some pretty good wisdom right there. It's some just broadly good perennial spiritual wisdom. I, I can I can I define humility before we shift gears? Sure. So just like I, I said that there's this sense that when people hear the word codependence, they think needy. I think that when people hear the word humility, they kind of go, ooh, or like, well, that would be nice, but that's for, you know, monks and Mother Teresa and for homeless people. And Thomas Merton had an absolutely brilliant definition of humility. He said that humility was being precisely who you are at any given time before God and at least one other person. And and I love that. I, I read that for the first time, and it literally took my breath away because I said, oh, I, I can do that. I want to do that. <laughs> and, and I don't know how to do that, but I can do that. As opposed to humility is, you know, getting down on broken glass and, and, and you know, humbly confessing your sins or, you know, renouncing all earthly possessions or something like that. And so humility is a renunciation of our need to be better or more than we are. And that is absolutely freeing. And the gift of the Enneagram is that it helps us to have the clarity about how to do that. Mm. Yeah, we had a person, uh, Joe Saxton, on our show recently. And uh, she she said that, uh, she used a phrase that I just, I copped, and I'm going to sort of use it here. But essentially, I'd say the Enneagram reveals who you were before the world told you who you were supposed to be. Mm. So there's about essence there, right? Uh, we come into the world, um, and then the world starts telling us in order to be loved, right? You live in a world where there's conditional love. You have to be this, you have to be that, you have to be this, you have to be that. You develop these strategies of personality in order to fulfill those expectations. You lose touch with your true self, with your essence, uh, which leads to, a, as you would say, a disintegrated life, literally, a split-off life, a false self and a true self. And so what it, the Enneagram reveals is the the false self, and it gives you clues about how to reclaim the true self. Yeah, I love that, uh, who you were before the world told you who you were to be. And, you know, I, I very much, and I, kn- I know you do this too, that that we have this this passion and this worldview that contemplation and introspection um, in and of itself is, forgive me for using a, a crude phrase, I really don't mean this to be funny, but it's like masturbation. It can feel good, but it doesn't produce life. And so the flip side of contemplation and introspection has to be other-centeredness. And so when you speak of the us, the me, the you, before the world told us who we are to be, when people start to tap into that, and that's, you know, that's the work that we who are in 
whether it's ministry or, or psychotherapy, caregiving, when we help people tap into that, it changes the world. Mm. And it, go, it goes from contemplation and self-knowledge to overflow and to service in a way where you then have these shining diamonds spreading light into the whole world and and bringing healing uh, to communities and to worlds. And, and I think that there's something very organic and substantive that when a, when a human being, and, and I've tasted this to a small degree, and I know you have too, but when a human being begins to live from that place of this is who I am before anybody told me this is who I'm to be, it, it, it's it's profound, and and I would go so far as to say that that's what holiness is. Mm-hmm. That when you're around when you're around a person, religious or not, that has that sense of presence where there's nothing adorning them other than that them that the before the world told them. Uh, there's something that is absolutely gravitational and compelling about that. Would you agree about that? The holiness. Yeah, I mean, actually, that's one of the that's one of the best definitions of holiness I've I've, I've heard in, in in quite some time. I mean, there's a there's any number that that would would be the would be the case. But I, you know, I think Dorothy Day was the one when someone used to used to call her a saint. She'd go, "Don't dismiss me that easily," <laughs> which I think was is akin to something that you're saying here, right? Which is, you know. That that holiness is, you know, she was actually what she was doing. I think in that moment was rejecting what the identity that person was attempting to thrust on her. And I think what she was saying is, no, no, don't dismiss me that easily. Who I am, as you would say, in my true self, uh, is is just Dorothy. You know, it that it. So I think. And that's an indication of her her spiritual maturity and health. Yeah, and let's bring it down to like an everyday level. Um, you know, you go to the Frothy Monkey, and I know a lot of friends in Nashville that go to the Frothy Monkey, and um, I've sat there myself and had deep conversations with men. And there's times where, whether it's with our spouse or a friend, where we're where we're having a conversation where we connect at a level that's not like just about what happened to us. But you really experience someone's soul or true self, and I've literally said this in psychotherapy sessions and in other conversations with friends, where you just go, man, that was holy. And there's nothing religious about it. You know, Jesus, God, the Bible wasn't part of the conversation, but it was an experience where there's utterly no other word for it. It would be, I guess, ineffable or or deeply sacred, but not religious. And, and that honors and is a statement about our personhood and our dignity and how we are a reflection of, uh, of, of something. And I would say for my tradition, someone that is, you know, utter beauty and that holiness is far more about beauty than some radioactive substance that's going to incinerate us if we get too mm. close. So Michael, at the end of every show, I, usually provide some advice or counsel or direction to people of of the type that we've been discussing that day as to, you know, how do they do their work? Now, you're a therapist, you're a two, you're deeply spiritual, thoughtful guy. Can you come up with, like, just briefly a couple of practices or tools that you use uh, as an Enneagram two to to do your work, to grow toward that true self? 
Yeah, I like how subtly and smoothly and skillfully you just dropped in there at the end of the show. So as you said that, as a two, my heart just sank. <laughs> and, and did you feel, Did what did like, you feel, Michael? Tell me, just articulate what the voice uh, in your head was. What, what movie launched no, in your I, head? I'm dead serious when I say this, and this is why I brought it up. Because as a two, I'm like, oh, the show's over already. And part of that is because I, I just love talking with you in this format. But another part of it is like, and this is not arrogance. This is my two-ness. Like, but I have so much to say. And, you know, I, I can be so helpful. And, and so that part of me that goes... Uh, so the show can't end. I, I then have to kind of step back and go, it's it's really OK. Um, I, I don't need to offer that. I don't need to be on for another hour and pour out everything inside the picture of my mind in order to have value. Then, then Michael, um, why are you holding up that piece of paper that says, I'm begging you, please let the show go on? Why are you holding up that piece of paper? I, I didn't think that that was showing. <laughs> let me let me ruffle that. <laughs> oh my word let let the show go on so yeah this is this is getting vulnerable day but that's that's kind of what i do i love that be so can i get you to be vulnerable about some personal transformational <laughs> helps for people sure um the biggest thing and the thing that comes to my mind um in terms of the biggest impact is intentional solitude and man on the on the surface, it seems like, okay, but Ian just asked for something practical, you know, something transformational, something that will really be helpful, like, you know, say this statement or stand on your left foot and count to seven uh, in Spanish. And in reality, uh, solitude is not tremendously helpful in the short term, but in the long term, what it has allowed me to do is to detox from my addiction to helping or giving or befriending people. Mm. And um, I've gone from being, this is not an exaggeration, literally terrified to be alone, unable to be in my car without noise, stimulation, conversation, interaction, to now, if I, if I go a day without some kind of intentional solitude, and I've added in stillness, silence, and contemplation, uh, then my blood pressure is higher. My anxiety is much more likely to drive and control me. And those compulsions will be really active, you know, cause I, I've done a lot of therapy, a lot of work, and, um, I'm, I'm certainly not beyond this when I'm not in a centered, settled place, the compulsions kick in. Wasn't it Rollheiser, Ronald Rollheiser, who said that, um, all spirituality is about what we do with the unrest in our soul. And so paying attention to that unrest, awareness, recognition, attentiveness, and then having a non-judgmental um, acceptance of all of that. And then rather than trying to, uh, to, to suppress it or to distract myself, being present to it and being alone. And in that aloneness, there is a settling there's a resting, and then honestly, and, and scientifically now this is understood, there's a, a rewiring of the pathways of the brain so that less and less my default is to compulsively turn toward connection, and more and more my default is to be connected to myself. Mm. And so you've got humility as an antidote, 
to the uh, sin and passion of pride, but I would also say it as a connection to yourself. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's that. I mean, I mean that is just wonderful enneagram wisdom. Which is, if you're an enneagram too, you got to spend, you got to do your work alone. Because if you don't, if you're with another person in the room, your first instinct will be to help them do their spiritual work uh, as a defense against you doing your own work. Number one, and because that's just how you're built. I mean, like that's your, or I should say, <clears throat> that's your 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 sort of characterological weakness, which is to to step in and uh, say, oh, I, don't, I don't need to do any work, but I can help you do yours, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, I started uh, centering prayer practice back in 1996, and off and on, falling down, standing up, being bored with it, putting it aside. And in the last three years, that off and on uh, began to bear some fruit. And for the last three years, it's really become a daily part of my life where I, I cannot imagine my life apart mm-hmm. from it. And it's become the basis of, of how I center myself, how I regulate my, my uh, various mood issues and, and, and dysregulation of my body. And it's really become a foundation. Um, and I think that now the essence and the healthy side of caregiving is I can want to give and help instead of have to. And, you know, that's the difference between freedom and compulsion is I, I get to. It's no longer a matter of I need to do this or I, I don't exist. Mm. Well, Michael, you are a genius. You are a counseling Jedi. You um, are everything I hoped for. You're everything, everything I, I need. <clears throat> there it is. That, that's that's I, music to a two's ears, isn't it? I can see you rocking back and forth with your yes, sunglasses you're everything on. I hoped for. You're everything I need. Oh, to be an Enneagram. You are so tooful <laughs> to me. <laughs> and I think that's the, that's the note on which we yes, should end. Yes, that is the note on which we should end. Michael, tell folks how they can hear about you, learn about you, and all the things that you do. Go ahead, tell them. Check out our intensive counseling programs at RestoringTheSoul.com. And we have a men's weekend for sex addiction, RestoringTheSoul.com forward slash weekend or MichaelJohnCusick.com. And that's all about the resources and programs and writing that I offer. And I'm really, really thankful to be on your program. This okay, so everybody listen to me on this. This is, I am not like stretching the truth here. And I just got to tell you, I think I would say that Michael Cusick is in the in the pantheon of the top three counselors, spiritual directors I know in the country. And that is not messing around. Wow. Thank you. I, I want to know who the other two are and I want to go see them. Yeah. Well, um, one of them is me. <laughs> uh, one of them is me on a good day and the other one is me on a bad day. <laughs> Are you sure, are you sure you're not a two? No, I'm a th- no. <laughs> Actually, I just eclipsed the enneagram altogether. A narcissism cannot be yeah. accounted for. The pathology just can't. I just collapsed the entire system. Oh my gosh. Well, Michael, again, thank you. Thank you Typology Tribe. Hey everybody. I want to remind you all again that today's show is sponsored by Talkspace the online therapy company that lets you choose from over 1,500 therapists. 
You can get matched with your perfect therapist who can put you on the path to a happier life and to becoming your best and truest self. For a special offer for our listeners, visit Talkspace.com forward slash typology. That's Talkspace.com, T-A-L-K-S-P-A-C-E forward slash typology, T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y. Check them out. If you enjoyed today's show or you got a suggestion for future episodes and guests, I'd love to hear from you. Go to our website, typologypodcast.com and submit a question or comment. And if you're up for it, please leave a review for us on iTunes because it really helps folks find our show. Until next week, my good friends, remember the words of the great Oscar Wilde, be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. (laughs) 